So we looked at how we can know that God is, exists. He's real. How we can know that we can trust what the Bible has to say. And how we can trust that Genesis 1 is an account. Our topic was the biblical account of creation. Not just a story. Not just a... Uh, uh, a figurative description, but an actual account. When we talk about the days in creation, we're talking about 24-hour days. We're not talking about eons of time. When we talk about the uh, space between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you're looking at about an eighth of an inch on your page, and that's really all the space that existed in time also. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. There are those that want to tell us that there's a big gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. They assume that the millions of years and billions of years of evolution can, can fit into that gap. And they base their assumption on the Hebrew words translated made and formed, or created and formed in Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-2. The only problem is that doesn't hold. The way those two words are used in Scripture, they're synonymous. God created the heaven and the earth. Uh, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God proceeded to form all that was in the world. There's not a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. There aren't eons of time on each day of creation. Now, Knowing that we can look at Genesis 1 as reality, we want to pick up tonight looking at this question, are science and the Bible compatible? Now, in a lot of ways we covered some of those details yesterday evening, and we'll hit on those in a moment. Before we dig into that though, we want to define the word science. What is science? Knowledge. Knowledge. At its basis, basic form, science is knowledge. What's knowledge? Ah, science, knowledge hinges on facts. If you go to the book of Proverbs and you study the words for knowledge there, they are uh, derivatives of the Hebrew words yada and daoth, and they carry the idea of fact. Now, there are some different words that we'll use for the word fact. We talk about the facts. Wasn't it Sergeant Joe Friday that would say, just the facts, ma'am? Anybody in here old enough to remember that? I'm not, but I'm sure somebody is. Yeah. <laughs> facts. Why, why would a detective be looking for the facts? Because he needs what? Information. Ah, those facts will constitute evidence. Science hinges on evidence. Science is going to be based on the laws of science, the law of rationality. We can only arrive at conclusions that are warranted by the evidence. The law of cause and effect. Any effect is the result of an adequate cause. The law of uh, excluded middle, or we talk about the law of uh, uh, biogenesis, the laws of thermodynamics, all of these laws are set. Now we talk about science and science is based on physical evidence. Now let's talk about the word faith. What's faith? We typically 
discuss faith as belief, right? It's a word we so often use. And it's, it's an appropriate word. But when we look at the foundations of faith, Evan just used the words substance and evidence. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He was being biblical. Can you believe that? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith involves evidence. As we noted last night, we look at the world around us and we have evidence for the existence of God. The uh, observation of the laws of science point toward evidence for an existence of God. We look at the integrity of Scripture, its perfect consistency, scientific foreknowledge, historical accuracy, fulfilled prophecy. We've got evidence that not only is there a God, but we can trust this book. Our faith is to be founded on evidence. By the way, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by thee. When I've looked at the evidence, then I, I can know that God is. I can know that I can trust this book. And I can know that nothing tangible and testable that He has given in Scripture has ever been proven wrong. And if He's been right in everything He says that can be tested, then I'm going to trust Him in the things that He said that I can't test. I've not seen heaven, but He's not lied to me about anything else. I've not seen the creation in terms of the event and it coming into to play. But based on all of the evidence He's given me about everything that I can observe and test, I know that He's trustworthy. That's how faith operates. Faith is not a walk out onto an untested limb. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark with, with no reason to trust in safety. Faith is founded on evidence. Just like science. So when we talk about science, we're talking about observation of the physical world as it pertains to uh, the facts that help us understand the world around us. When we talk about faith, we're talking about the observation of the facts in this physical world that help us realize that we can trust this book from our spiritual God and the spiritual promises He's made. From the outset, we need to understand there's really no disconnect between faith and real science. But then you've got what Paul uh, has so often been connected to Paul's words, 1 Timothy 6.20. He warned Timothy about those oppositions of science, falsely so-called. Keep that passage in mind. When Paul warned Timothy about science, falsely so-called, he didn't have the creationist-evolutionist debate in mind. He was actually talking about those that claimed to know things they didn't know. Over the course of the next few decades, a group would emerge in the first century that would be called the Gnostics, and they really came to rise in the second century. But they were the ones that had their noses so high in the air that if it rained, they choked. And their mindset was, I know something you don't know. Gnostics, knowledge. They claimed to know things that they didn't really know. And Paul warned about those that tried to give oppositions from their falsely so-called knowledge. Now, there are still those today that use the same kind of manufactured or imaginary evidence 
as the Gnostics wanted to use for their doctrine, but there are people today that want to use that sort of mindset and call it science. They claim to know things using circular reasoning. Real science is based on evidence. Faith is based on evidence. By the way, that means that my trust in the fact of God's existence isn't just based on this feeling I have in my heart. I have all sorts of feelings in my heart. I feel like a cheeseburger ought to be healthy. Can you, can you say amen to that? I feel like it ought to be healthy, but guess what? Just because I feel something in my heart doesn't make it so. I know a fellow in Scripture named David, uh, Jacob rather, who saw partial evidence that convinced him that his son was dead. You think he would have traded that feeling in his heart uh, for, for anything that would disprove his sincerity? He knew the sincerity of the emotion that he had, but, but he saw the evidence wrongly. Where are we going to look at the evidence the right way? It's not just about how I feel. It's not just about what I want to believe. It's about where do the facts lead. Now, as we noted last night, when we talk about the fact that we can know that God is there, we know that matter requires a maker. This material world had to have someone make it. We talked about the uh, first law of thermodynamics, constant amount of matter, material, physical, substance, and energy in this universe. It's not going up or down. Now, it's changing state, but it's not increasing or decreasing. But of that constant amount of matter and energy, the second law of thermodynamics points out that it's getting less and less and decreasing. The world is getting more disorderly. If you'd like an example of that, look at the U.S. government. But a constant amount of energy and matter and the usable energy is going downhill, which means when you look at the universe around us and you start tracing these lines backwards, there was a point at which the useful energy was equal to the available energy. That's the start. There was no energy before the beginning. There was no matter before this initial moment. Matter could not make itself, therefore something that was not matter, not physical, had to make it. We investigated that a bit more deeply last night. But simple laws of science and observation let us know that if I've got an empty jar that's vacuum sealed, nothing's going to grow in it unless something from outside that system operates on it. The same true of our universe. Matter requires a maker. Life requires a life giver. Life never just popped up out of a droplet of water. Life always requires that something that already possessed life make it. Now, if matter had to be created, what does that tell you about life? It had to come from somewhere. It's called the law of biogenesis. Now, again, we discussed that in more detail last night. We're going to go ahead and move forward tonight. Then there's cause and effect. Design demands a designer. That law of cause and effect is constant. There are no exceptions to it. This universe is the result of something. The result of some first cause. And even those that would go all the way back to saying it all started from some infinitesimal speck have to explain the cause of the infinitesimal speck. And there isn't one. So when we look at the evidence, not only can we know that God is there using science, 
But now we want to, we want to delve into our study tonight of is the Bible, or are the Bible and science compatible? <clears throat> but before we do that, we're going to break this into two sections. I want to ask another question first. Is science compatible with modern skepticism? Is science compatible with those that have hijacked the name science and claim it as their banner of force in propelling their preferences and ideologies? Is science compatible with skepticism? See, the skeptics are going to put forward this idea of spontaneous generation. Instead of the law of biogenesis, they are going to, uh, to insist that, that life arose out of nothing. You ever heard of Louis Pasteur? Pasteurization. You read his name every time you buy a gallon of milk. Pasteurized. Louis Pasteur, between 1859 and 1861, I don't think any of you were around then, but between 1859 and 1861, Louis Pasteur conducted a series of experiments where he arrived at the conclusion that we now call that law of biogenesis. Life requires life. It only comes from life. What's interesting was, as clear-cut, obvious, and irrefutable as his findings were, just a few years earlier, or at the same time, there was a really popular push connected to a fellow called Charlie D. That's not what they really called him. They called him Charles Darwin, but I'd call him Charlie D because it'd make him mad. Darwin's theory of evolution, as we now call it, was gaining steam, as, as were a lot of skeptical ideas that tried to kick back against any idea of biblical creation. And so when... Pasteur's experiments pointed to the fact that life requires pre-existing life. It didn't take the scholars long to, to backdate their thoughts and realize that, well, if life exists, there had to be some previous life that was non-physical. Oh, wait, that would have to be supernatural. Oh, we just can't take that. So there was kickback. It wasn't until 15 years later that his law of biogenesis that he had discovered was accepted. But for uh, 50 years, the findings of another individual named Ernest Haeckel would be purported as fact. Ernst Haeckel was a, a German scientist, philosopher, who who put forward the idea that everything's getting progressively better, progressively more organized. That sort of goes against that law of thermodynamics, the idea of entropy where everything's getting less organized. But no, he put forward this idea. And if you, if you study human history, you're going to see this idea incorporated into uh, politics and economics. It's called communism and socialism. Works great. And then whenever you apply it to uh, life in general, it's going to be the theory of evolution. The idea that life is getting progressively more complex. Haeckel also, during that time, claimed to have found what he called the Monera. The Monera, as he described it, was 
organisms which are in fact not composed of any organs at all, but consist entirely of shapeless, simple, homogeneous matter. The entire body of one of these monera during life is nothing more than a shapeless, mobile, little lump of mucus or slime. Stop thinking about family members. Consisting of an albuminous combination of carbon. Simpler or more imperfect organisms we cannot possibly conceive. In other words, we found Slimer from Ghostbusters and it has no organs at all. We're going to call it matter. A ball of mucus. But it's got life in it, I just know it. Within a few years, by 1875, Haeckel's Monera was proven to be, and I'll go ahead and quote, amorphous gypsum. In other words, it was chalky slime. That's it. There was no life in it whatsoever. No, no shape, no form, no life. But for 50 years, textbooks and science in general put forward this idea of the most basic form of life, this, this Monera that Haeckel had claimed to find. When it comes down to it, the simplest form of life is more complex than anything we've ever created. If you think about, you remember the sheep named Dolly that they bioengineered? If you think about modern genetics and genetic engineering, if you think about anything that we've tried to do with DNA in the human genome, if you were to do that in the corporate world, it's illegal because it's called reverse engineering. If I take a product that was developed by a fellow named Steve Jobs and decide I'm going to reverse engineer it and see how it works and make something just like it, and since it's the second of its kind, I'm going to call it the pear instead of the apple. I'm going to have problem with all sorts of uh, uh, trademark issues. Reverse engineering is illegal in the corporate world, but that's exactly what science tries to do in the realm of genetics. Every effort to manufacture life has hinged on the fact that life already exists and trying to use the already existing ingredients to recreate life. Reverse engineering. In other words, man's just trying to do what God's already done. Life from non-life, and this is another quote, is as likely as a space shuttle assembling itself and launching itself. <laughs> That'd be fun to see, but it just don't happen. Here's what's interesting. The evolutionary community would come up with the claim that we know life spontaneously arose from non-life. We're just not sure exactly how. Hmm. That's the general consensus. We know that it happened. We just don't know how it happened. We know that it doesn't happen anymore. We know that it's impossible, but, but somehow it happened at once. Okay. That's like me telling you, based on all the evidence that we have, I know that gravity is going to push me away off of the earth at some point. I, just, I know it's going to happen. You, you can't disprove me. No amount of evidence is going to convince me otherwise. Okay. That doesn't make me right, no matter how much I claim to know it. So, 
this idea of spontaneous generation, not only is it something disproven, but more often than not, the false evidence that people are taking as being convincing, even after it's disproven, they're putting it into the textbooks and into the mainstream for decades after it's been debunked. Then there are vestigial organs. Vestigial organs, the, the term vestigial comes from that idea of vestige, something that's left over. Now, you know what leftovers are. You have three plates of them in the fridge. One of them's been there for a week and a half, and you know you're not going to eat it, but you just can't get yourself to throw it out until penicillin starts to grow on it. Leftovers. Vestigial organs were considered to be leftovers in the human body. Organs that had no purpose, no function, that perhaps once served a purpose, but now here they are doing nothing. One example would be the vermiform appendix. The idea of these vestigial organs was a sugar stick for the evolutionary mind because they claim that, well, if vestigial organs exist, creation can't explain that because within four to 6,000 years of man being made by God, man could not have changed to the point that these organs aren't, aren't functioning anymore. We'll hold off on that thought for a moment. The problem with these 186 vestigial organs that were initially listed and claimed as useless is that as science advanced within decades, that list had slimmed down to zero. Take, for instance, the appendix. At this point, the appendix, which was thought to be worse than useless because you've heard of appendicitis, and if it ruptures, it can be fatal. The appendix is an organ that does nothing, but if it gets infected, that it can be lethal. We need to get rid of the appendix. Just take them off the assembly line before the baby's even born. Well, they're now known to be immunological, immunologically functional. Even in the embryo, as the child develops in the womb and continues to work till adulthood, one of the things the appendix does is that it exposes immune cells to different bacteria or organisms that can be living in the stomach and helps the immune system, your body's security system, know what bacteria is the good guy and what bacteria is the bad guy. The appendix is going to be pivotal in autoimmune issues and other areas of similar purport. Here's the thing. This argument concerning vestigial organs that science claimed proved evolution, well, it's been debunked. But guess what you can still find in half of the textbooks that are in schools today? Vestigial organs being uh, a reflection of evolution. Then there's the diversity of life. You look around this room, you see diversity just among a, a group that lives within, what, 30 to 40 minutes of each other? When you look at the amount of diversity that exists just in humans, all that diversity stems from slight alterations in something we call DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. It's going to be on the spelling test later. Make sure you write it down. DNA. But you only have to spell the abbreviation, so that makes it easy. DNA, composed of four bases, adenine, guanine, thymine, cytosine. But 
those bases are constructed in pairs in helix form, different lengths and strands carrying different uh, details of what is now called the genetic code. If you think it's impressive that we can fit 16 gigs on a little thumb drive, think about the amount of information contained in one strand of DNA. But for DNA to develop evolutionary, in evolutionary terms, it had to develop itself. By the way, you ever seen a thumb drive develop itself? Or an external hard drive? No mutations have ever added to the human genome, the, the human genetic code. The idea of evolution is that mutation occurs. Those that, that enjoy films and uh, uh, may have seen the, the X-Men films, and the, the first few always begin with this idea of mutation. It is what has pushed mankind forward. Mutation always brings degeneration, detriment. Mutation in humans is never positive. It does happen. Hermaphrodism, that's a mutation. Chromosome disorders, it's a mutation. When we talk about things such as uh, various uh, chromosome deficiencies. We're talking about mutations, and they, they result in handicaps. They result in what is respectfully uh, considered different areas of physical or mental retardation. The person that, that has to endure these afflictions is limited and hindered, not less valuable and less of a person, but limited because mutation is always detrimental, not beneficial. Yet the, one of the major tenets of evolutionary thinking is mutation has brought us forward. Mutation took us from walking like this to this. Hmm. So what do we call it now when we're doing this all the time? Mutation cannot explain molecules to man evolution because the evolutionary idea is that we started down here and worked our way up. The creation idea is that we started up here. And by the way, biblically speaking, since sin has happened, what has happened to man's lifespan? Adam, 930 years. Methuselah, 969 years. Methuselah was the eighth generation from Adam. But then they started getting less and less. Noah, the flood comes. And following the flood, Noah still makes it to above 900 years. But each generation after that, less and less and less. Life has changed ever since the Garden of Eden. Our bodies have become less resilient ever since the Garden of Eden. We have become weaker and weaker. And if you really stop and think about it, that's not only talking about physically. 
Oh yes, we live in a world where the athletes are stronger than the athletes of a generation ago. That's because we pump more steroids and proteins into them at an early age. It's not because the human body itself is getting any better. With all of our ailments and all of our sicknesses and all of our mutations, no. But that also applies mentally. The greatest challenge to, uh, to the human mind is discovery. Looking at the world, the environment, and drawing conclusions from that environment. We have, we stand on the shoulders of those that have accomplished discovery in order for us to enjoy technology. See, technology is a couple of steps down from discovery. And just because I've got the iPhone doesn't mean I'm smarter than those that had to dial with the rotary dial. It just means that we have knowledge available to us that we didn't have to discover, so we were able to advance the collective knowledge beyond what it was. But that doesn't mean our minds are working any better. When we talk about the development and progression of us, it doesn't mean we're not getting smarter. We're, we're not getting stronger. This idea of entropy is affecting us as well. Which, by the way, biblically speaking, correlates. But in terms of evolution, how are we going to explain that? So, when we look at diversity of life and the trends of life, when we, we'll hear people talk about uh, changes and adaptation. And there's a difference between adaptation, what's been deemed as microevolution, and mutation, which is macroevolution, large leaps of advancement at a time. Adaptation occurs, but it does not add information to that DNA jump drive. For instance, when you have this peppered moth that is uh, adapting over generations to be able to blend with its environment, that's not mutation. That's the result of certain uh, specimens of the species being eaten and others surviving that blend better with the environment. Adaptation occurs, yes, but that's not a matter of changing the genome. That's simply a matter of reflecting influences on the, the species, whatever develop, uh, species it may be, but it's not a progression. Now, then there's the formation of proteins. Carl Sagan calculated that the chance of one protein coming into existence by chance was 1 in 10 to the 130,000th power. So it's a little bit less than our national debt. Seriously speaking, that would actually be, we measure our national debt in trillions, right? Now a trillion is a one followed by one, two, three thousand, four, five, six million, seven, eight, nine billion, ten, eleven, twelve trillion. Twelve zeros. 
A one followed by 12 zeros is a trillion. Now, if you multiply a trillion by a trillion, that's saying you have this group of a trillion, and then you're making a trillion more groups that each contain a trillion. That would be one trillion squared, one trillion times itself. The number Carl Sagan gave would be one trillion, not times itself twice, not thrice, not four, not five, not six, not seven, not eight, not nine, not ten. One trillion groups of another trillion groups of those trillion eleven times. A one followed by so many zeros you would just about run out of room on the page to write it. But the point of all of that is this. It is clear that one could randomly assemble all the, one could not randomly assemble all the elementary particles in the universe, period. You could try it a billion times a second for the age of the universe and never get this protein. Now keep in mind that Mr. Sagan thought that the universe was billions of years old. And he said you could try this a billion times a second and still not come out with this single protein. And by the way, a single protein does not constitute life as we know it. That's just one of the more basic forms of it. Because of this sort of calculation and realization, another scientist, if we can call him that, British philosopher, uh, Sir Frederick Hoyle, calculated that the chances of proteins in a simple amoeba forming were 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. I don't even know how to illustrate that. But I know this much. Mr. Frederick's saw that it was, uh, Frederick Hoyle saw that it was such a, uh, an unlikely event that he said, well, aliens must have put life here. That was his conclusion. I kid you not. Hmm. He was willing to acknowledge the idea that something acting from outside of the system could have put life here, but he'd rather believe in aliens than God. Hmm. Starting to sound like a Marvel movie, don't you think? Mr. Carl Sagan said concerning his calculations, There is no doubt about the fact of evolution, but there are still sizable questions on the mechanics of the evolutionary process. I don't doubt that this, this happened, but it's impossible to explain. Now you tell me, does that sound like science? Science is based on fact. Science is based on evidence. Science is based on this can happen. This is what does happen. Everything we've just e examined was based on speculation. So when I ask the question, is science compat compatible with today's skepticism? I know what the answer seems to be. In fact, so does Robert Jastrow. Robert Jastrow is a nuclear physicist. Uh, worked with, with NASA back in his day, particularly in the 70s. And he, and an agnostic, but he concluded perhaps the appearance of life on the earth is a miracle. Scientists are reluctant to accept that view, but their choices are limited. Either life was created on the earth by the will of a being outside the grasp of scientific understanding, 
God. Or it evolved on our planet spontaneously through chemical reactions occurring in non-living matter lying on the surface of the planet. Now listen to the next two paragraphs he gives. The first theory, supernatural, places the question of the origin of life beyond the reach of scientific inquiry. It is a statement of faith in the power of a supreme being not subject to the laws of science. The biblical description of creation involves faith. Then he says the second theory, evolution, spontaneous creation, is also an act of faith. The act of faith consists in assuming that the scientific view of the origin of life is correct without having concrete evidence to support the belief. Now, we've divided it into two realms. The first question was, is science compatible with modern skepticism? Modern skepticism is an act of faith based on zero evidence. Which brings us to the next question. Is science compatible with the Scriptures? Now for that, obviously we go to the Bible. We can begin with Genesis. Genesis 1. In the beginning time, God, personhood, intellectual, Created, force, action, heaven, space, and the earth, matter, physical. By the way, science will say that these are the, the five uh, basic ingredients of reality. And here we have a document composed 1500 B.C., that describes the beginning of reality in terms that, that are absolutely scientific. We take a look at what's described in Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Question, what did He make first? In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, darkness upon the face of the deep. When He made it, there were waters involved. When we get to day two, He puts a firmament in the midst of the waters, the water vapor in the waters. The first thing He said was, let there be light. He made the heaven and earth out of nothing. Now, that corresponds with the first and second laws of thermodynamics. It all came from nothing. God did not say, let there be light into nothingness. He said, let there be light concerning the formless matter that He had brought into existence. Now, moving forward from there, he divided the, the light. He called the light day. The darkness he called night. The evening and the morning were the first day. We take a look at everything given in Genesis chapter 1. And it defies scientific speculation. 
but it makes perfect sense with scientific observation. The children sing, day three, day three, God made grass and flowers and trees. Then they get to six day, six day, God had made animals and man that day. Just three days between the introduction of plant life and the introduction of land animals and man, and by the way, the creeping things that creep upon the earth. Three days between the introduction of, of the, the, the sylvia plant and the introduction of the, the bee that pollinates it. The evolutionary model would have plants growing without anything to cross-pollinate them. For millions of years, the creation model shows plants and the pollinating creatures that depend on them coming into existence within days of each other, perfectly able to sustain life. We take a look at the Genesis account of creation and it supports, uh, it correlates with science. But there's something else to consider. Those that want to attack this book are typically going to attack two major events described in it. Oh, they'll, they'll find reasons to gripe and complain and try to, uh, to wrangle about other passages. But there are two major events in Scripture that tend to be the focus of their ire. One is creation. Anybody want to guess what the other one is? The flood. They tell us, oh, there was never a global flood. We go to Genesis 6. Man's heart was only evil continually. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God gave Noah the instructions for how to build this ark. And he told Noah, I bring a flood upon the earth. As we move forward, Genesis 6, 7, and 8... When the flood finally came upon the earth, Genesis 7, picking up at verse 11, the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. The fountains of the deep were broken up. Not just it rained, but there was water that came from the deep. Of course, modern geology particularly the study of plate tectonics, lends to this idea concerning the growing pressure of subterranean water beneath land masses that eventually got to the point that there was a rupture. And by the way, when that rupture occurred, we're told back in Genesis 2-5 uh, that it had never rained, but God watered the earth with a mist. There appears to have been prior to the flood when God had divided the waters from the waters on day two, Genesis chapter one, there were the waters on the earth, the liquid water, but then there was the water above the firmament. Now, what do we call water up in the sky above the firmament? Clouds? Water vapor? God divided the waters from the waters. We're told in Genesis 2 5 that it hadn't rained. He watered the earth with a mist. But then Genesis 7, uh, 12, there's the fountains of the deep erupt. Shooting water. 
and particles of dirt, sediment, rock into the air. Well, when you have a vapor canopy that comes into contact with particles, dust, water, they become particles of condensation and the vapor is no longer vapor. You start getting rain. Ever wonder why life got so much shorter after the flood? Think it could have been because they didn't have as much protection from sunlight as they had prior to the flood? We think about the biblical record that's given and so much makes sense when, when we stand back and observe and really think about what was being described. When we examine the, just the Genesis flood, now we're told by those around us, oh, there was never a flood that covered all of the earth. There was nobody that ever put a bunch of animals into a boat. One of the interesting things about that is when you step back and you look at cultures around the world, almost every culture has a flood story. Hmm. How did essentially every culture make up its own flood story, which by the way typically involves uh, a limited number of people, a floating apparatus, and saving animals. Now, the different flood stories of different cultures get a little uh, out there, so to speak. For instance, there's the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic that had their version of Noah, Gilgamesh, in, in, inside a a cubed boat, a perfect cube that could contain all of these animals. When you were a child, did you ever have one of those little tube boxes that had the different shapes on top? And, and you could put in a, a, a shape through the different holes, you could put in a square, you could put in a, a circle, or you could put in a, a, a triangle. Think about one of those squares, perfect cube. Put that square in the bathtub and stir the water a little bit. What's going to happen to that square? Let's just say that if there were a man and animals in that square, you're going to have Noah soup mixed up with all sorts of elephant and giraffe and everything else that was inside this cube because it's not stable in water. But God told Noah to build it 300 cubits by 30 cubits by 50 cubits, which by the way... Those dimensions are still the ratios that are used for ocean-going vessels today. God gave Noah dimensions for a vessel that would be perfectly stable. When we look at the details concerning the biblical account of the flood, they're scientifically feasible. Oh yes, the, uh, the flood is uh, magnificent, catastrophic. But nonetheless, the details are feasible. Reasons that we can trust that a flood occurred. The, uh, the skeptics tell us no. The skeptics tell us that, that we know that these animals that we've just dug out of the dirt are, are millions of years old. How do you know they're millions of years old? Because we dug them out of this strata of rock. How do you know that strata of rock's millions of years old? Because we got this animal out of it. Hmm. That's sort of like when you're, you're talking to a child and the, uh, you ask this child, why, why is it that, that this toy is broken? 
Well, be, because it was on the floor. Well, why did you leave it on the floor? Because it was broken. No, no, we, we've got to get to an initial cause. Why was it on the floor in the first place? Because it was broken. Well, what broke it? Well, it was on the floor. No, you're not answering the question. Why is it that this rock strata is considered millions of years old? Well, because there was a dinosaur fossil in it. Well, how do you know that dinosaur fossils millions of years old? Because it was in that rock strata. It's called circular reasoning. When we talk about the flood, consider a few ideas that just show that it correlates with science and not uniformitarianism, the idea that everything has always continued as it was, but with actual science. For instance, we just mentioned rock strata and the sedimentary layers. Whenever you have a deluge of any kind, well, you get dirt all over the place. We lived in New Orleans for 11 years. We knew what water flow looked like. Did you know that in New Orleans, the roads are actually only intended to be roads as a secondary usage? Their primary purpose is to be a stream particularly the side streets. Whenever a nice heavy rain comes along, you're going to get whatever washes down with that water. Whatever the neighbor didn't have secured in his yard, whatever leaves have fallen, whatever dirt had been brought to a home because they were about to shore it up, <laughs> not when the rain comes, it gets washed down street. Think about the magnitude of the flood. The ark was, would have had a draft of 15 cubits uh, deep, which by the way, that is uh, how high the water went over the highest peaks at the time, 15 cubits. The Bible describes the flood as being a global event. Now there are those that say it was local. Well, here's the thing. Water conforms to a container. Water doesn't stand up with a solid edge unless it's frozen, and that's called ice. For the water to have been over the highest peaks, that meant it was over all the lowest places as well. You just don't get around that. When you have that magnitude of water flowing over the entire face of the earth, you have a churning, and by the way, with the magnitude of a uh, tectonic force that would have been involved in this eruption of the fountains of the deep and with the description of uh, the rain for 40 days and the, the conditions uh, Genesis 7 continuing for some 150 days uh, the, the waters prevailing Genesis 7 24 you've got turbulence this is a stirred bucket of dirt The heavy is going to settle first. The next heaviest is going to settle next. And it's going to happen over a relatively short period of time. You know, within a, just over a year, Noah's off of the ark. When you look at the rock strata, geologically speaking, I want to read you this description. The layers of the rock strata will extend not only in a region a few miles wide, but 
the bulk of the surface of the earth is comprised of sedimentary rock. 80 to 90 percent of the earth's surface is covered with sediment or sedimentary rock. The geological column on the upper layers, what we would call the, the, the surface, they are characterized by localized beds of sedimentary rock. But the lower layers, what we would call the flood layers, are composed of rock that spans over extensive regions and often across continents. For example, geologists have identified six mega sequences of sedimentary rock layers at the Grand Canyon that can be followed across North America. Or you take the chalk beds of the Cretaceous period. Anyone ever seen the, the white cliffs of Dover that are uh, on the eastern side of England? The, this chalk layer, the white cliffs of Dover, actually extend from Ireland through England across the English Channel into France and Europe all the way down to the Middle East, Egypt, and even into Kazakhstan. And then there's the fact that those same chalk beds can be found sandwiched between the same strata in the Midwest of the U.S. and in, South, and in Western Australia. Now for those chalk beds to be between the same strata that widespread around the world, it had to be a global event that did that. There's only one global event that could explain it, that's the flood. Or in terms of does, the, does science agree with the Bible, where would you expect to find dead marine life? You look for dead fish, they're going to be where? In the sea or on the shore? But you don't typically expect to find marine fossils in, say, the Himalayas. I mean, that fish jumped hard, right? One would predict marine fossils to be discovered over the entire earth on all continents and atop mountains if they were a flood, and indeed that's what we find. Marine fossils have been found above sea level worldwide. The summits of mountains, even the Himalayas, host marine fossils. And here's the thing. <clears throat> the rock that raised to form mountains are never at the base of the ocean. Different type of rock, different makeup. The rock that's at the base of the ocean tends to be a, a heavier rock. So it's not that these marine fossils were on that rock before it came out of the ocean, no. It's that these uh, marine fossils were on that rock before the ocean lowered during a flood. Another evidence. When we think about those rock layers, there was a time when they were dirt. What happens to a pile of dirt in your yard if you just let it set and it has a year's worth of uh, seasonal rains hit it? Is it going to be the same look pile of dirt or is it going to be diminished a bit? If millions of years are required <clears throat> for the existence of this strata, well, it's going to have dips and sways, and it's going to have a rough transition from one strata to the next. But if you look at the strata layers of the world, it's layered like a birthday cake. And I don't mean one of those ones with, with swirls either. We're talking about layers. Because the strata were laid down in such quick succession. Something that's really interesting. 
When Mount St. Helens erupted in the early 80s, there was a gorge formed in one day. A gorge that measured one-fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon was formed in one day. I wonder what you would get if you had an eruptive, destructive, cataclysmic event that carried on for 40 days. Think you could get something like the Grand Canyon? Hmm. Can you think of something that took place for 40 days? When we step back and look at the evidence, there is plenty of evidence to support the biblical timeline of creation, the biblical flood. And then <clears throat> even this idea of fossilization. Fossilization doesn't happen uh, commonly. It's something that's rare. It requires rapid burial, rapid burial with suppressed oxygen to deteriorate, and then pressure. When you look at the amount of fossils available, particularly concerning dinosaurs, the indication is rapid death, rapid burial. Not something that just died out over the course of millions of years, but rapid death with the rapid burial. By the way, would a flood accomplish that? One other area to consider, because we have to talk about dating. One of the things that often gets brought up is this idea of radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon dating is essentially taking the, the amount of carbon that is in a, a specimen and estimating the, the half-life of it or calculating the half-life of it. The idea is if it takes this specimen uh, or this quantity of carbon 10,000 years to, to deteriorate half of its uh, shape or half of its quantity, then we can backtrack to estimate <clears throat> when it was laid down in the strata layer. But the problem with the radiocarbon dating, in 2010, Purdue and Stanford scientists found radioactive isotopes fluctuate in sync with the sun's core. Hmm, that's interesting. So the radioactive components on this planet will fluctuate in their deterioration in relation to what the core of the sun is doing. Why? They don't know. And I don't either. But they concluded this. Something that can't interact with anything, the core of the sun, is changing something that can't be changed, the half-life and deterioration of radioactive specimens. In 2009, a study in Rome found these sort of radioactive isotopes changing by a factor of 10,000 in, um, in certain materials as a result of ultrasonic cavitation. Ultrasound. Ultrasound involves sound waves. This ultrasonic cavitation involved sound waves underwater. Hmm. Could... Could... Seismic activity and vibrations over the course of, say, 40 days create such ultrasonic uh, waves underwater that it might impact 
the materials that are hit by these sound waves? Could that impact the ability to estimate the amount of time that those materials that were subject to the ultrasonic waves have been underwater and then buried in the, the dirt? So much of the evolutionary timeline is based on radiocarbon dating and the idea of this half-life. But the problem is that all things do not continue as they once were. The world when formed at the creation was not the world before it was formed. The world after the flood was far different than the world before the flood. When we look at the history of the world from the biblical timeline, we get to understand why some things might appear to be a bit uh, altered in terms of their composition from what would be expected with that all things continue as they always have mindset of uniformitarianism. All of that being said, that brings us down to this. Kyle Butt wrote an article where he pointed out that evolutionists once assumed that plant-eating dinosaurs fed on trees because grass didn't evolve until millions of years after the dinosaurs were extinct. Right up until in 2005, grass was found in fossilized dinosaur dung, which forced a reconsideration of many long-standing assumptions. <laughs> Kyle wrote, think about the comment just for a second. A sample of dinosaur dung shows up with traces of grass in it, and the theories for the evolution of grass have to be adjusted by more than 10 million years because so much of their information is nothing more than long-standing assumptions that can be completely discounted with a handful of fossilized manure. That ought to put things into perspective. The assumptions that go with the skepticism fall far short of the evidence that stands with Scripture. Science books change from year to year. They're out of date as soon as they're printed. Scripture has stayed consistent from the time it was penned. And it's consistent with all of the factual data that we have available. Peter said, uh, The word of the Lord endureth forever, 1 Peter 1.25. And indeed it does. I want to read you one more quote from Robert Jastrow, who said, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> because when it comes down to it, the more we learn about science, the more we learn that the Bible's right. Does science... Uh, is science compatible with Scripture? Absolutely. The only question is, what assumptions are we willing to put to the side in order simply to look at the evidence that we have? Thank you for your time this evening. Uh, and I think that now we are allowed to go and eat whatever snacks the children have left over for the adults. But thank you very much. <laughs>